This is KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. And today, on Wednesday, we are sponsoring a weekly shiur by Rav uh, Dr. Avi Wolfish, who's been doing a lot of work in the last few years on the study of Mishnah specifically, giving a weekly shiur on reading Mishnah. In our eighth shear on Masechet Rosh Hashanah, we will discuss the Mishnayot of Rosh Hashanah, Perak Gimel. Uh, we saw last shear that um, the first and last Mishnah of uh, this chapter requires some explanation as to why they appear in this chapter. And the body of the chapter, Mishnayot, Bet through Zayin, uh, we saw deals with the laws of Shofar, opening with the question of what is the source of the Shofar and correspondingly what is the shape. Uh, does it come from a Ya'el? Does it come from a Zachar, namely an Ayel, a Ram? Um, and correspondingly, are we talking about a Shofar Kafuf, bent over, or a Shofar Pashut, curved in only one direction? In other words, what the Mishnah calls straight. Um, this is uh, this differs from Rosh Hashanah to Taniyot, and between the two of them and uh, Yovel. That's what's discussed in Mishnayot Gimel through Hay, primarily. Mishnah Bet is a kind of introduction to that, saying that all Shofarot are kosher, except for that of a cow. Um, Mishnah Vav. This uh, discusses the wholeness of the uh, shofar, how the uh, shofar must be entire, and if it uh, has a crack or a hole in it, then very often that will disqualify the shofar. Mishnah Zayin talks about the need to hear the sound of the shofar itself and not the uh, sound of an echo. And the end of Mishnah Zayin, talks about the need for kavanah. If you're walking behind the shul and you hear the sound of a shofar, so then you have to direct your heart, in other words, have intention that uh, you do intend to hear the sound and to thereby fulfill the mitzvah of shofar. If you uh, lack such intent, then you don't fulfill the mitzvah of of tkiat shofar. Uh, At the end of last year, I raised the question, Uh, How do these Mishnayot all uh, hinge together? We also asked why the Mishnah doesn't uh, limit its discussion to the Shofar Rosh Hashanah and includes a discussion of the uh, other kinds of Shofarot, the one of Ta'anit and the one of uh, Yovel uh, as well. Uh, In order to get a bit deeper uh, of an understanding as to how this... uh, um, a group of Mishnayot is structured. Let's take a look at one of the fault lines in this group of Mishnayot, uh, namely Mishnah Vav. Mishnah Vav uh, discusses the wholeness or entirety of the Shofar, and an interesting thing happens in the middle of that uh, in the middle of that Mishnah. Uh, in in Mishnayot, Bet through Hay, we talked about what shofar can be used 
uh, and which so far may not be used. At the beginning of Mishnah Vav, we continue also discussing the shofar that uh, can be used. Uh, the Mishnayot that can be used, the Mishnayot Gimel through Hay, depend upon, uh, depend upon, uh, uh, their shape. Based on Mishnah Bet, we might also say that the origin of the shofar plays some kind of a role, but uh, Mishnah Gimel through Hay focuses on the shape. The beginning of Mishnah Vav also focuses on the physical properties of the shofar. Uh, so, the opening of Mishnah Vav, if the shofar was cracked and was glued back together, then that's not good enough. The crack disqualifies. If you glue together two half shofarot, that's also no good. Um, so here we see that anything that impairs the physical wholeness of the shofar disqualifies it. But the last halacha of Mishnah Vav has an interesting proviso. Nikav ustamo, if it was, uh, uh, if it had developed a hole, uh, and the hole was then plugged up. Im akevet pasul vimlav kasher. If this, uh, prevents the tkia, which, uh, is normally understood as meaning if it affects the sound. Okay, now, uh, if it affects the sound, then it's pasul, and if it does not affect the sound, then it's not pasul. The question here being, uh, obviously, we can't mean that it prevents the sound altogether, because then, obviously, uh, you ha- hear no sound of a shofar, and you can't fulfill the mitzvah. So what we mean to say is that the sound was affected. The sound was affected by what? By the hole, by the plugging up of the hole, uh, this is a large dispute between, uh, among the, the Rishonim, um, and, uh, proofs can be brought, uh, for it, uh, from the Gemara. Obviously, in, uh, in either direction, you can try to bring proofs for, for either understanding. Uh, the Tosefta, uh, also impacts on, on the way in which this Mishnah can be understood. But what, what I want to focus on is, the, the very uh, fact that the Mishnah makes it dependent upon the sound. Uh, in the first two cases of Mishnah Vav, the sound of the shofar really made no difference. As we don't say, shofar shenizdak v'dibko, if the sound is affected, then pasul, and if the sound is not affected, then kasher. Similarly with dibek shivrei shofarot. Because there we say that if the shofar is not physically whole, then even though it was glued back together, the, it doesn't matter. Uh, the sound could be the exact same sound that it was beforehand. But nonetheless, the Mishnah will disqualify the Shofarot. When, instead of a lengthwise crack that basically divides the Shofar into into two pieces, uh, they're either completely separated in the second case, Dibek Shivrei Shofarot, or uh, are joined together on at one on one side and on the other side they're they're separated. If instead of that uh, you have a hole, a hole in and of itself does not disqualify the shofar. Whether or not the hole disqualifies the shofar depends upon whether uh, uh, whether or not uh, the sound uh, is affected. Now the interesting thing.
about this point is, if we ask ourselves uh, which Mishnayot we would group uh, Mishnavav with. Uh, insofar as Mishnavav is dealing with the physical properties of the Shofar, it would seem to belong to the previous three or four Mishnayot, which talked about the physical properties of the Shofar, uh, focusing mostly on the shape, possibly also on the source. Um, this is certainly the case with regard to the first two halachot in Mishnah Vav, in which the very fact that the shofar is not physically whole disqualifies it. So Mishnah Vav is then the next stage of discussing the physical properties of the shofar. First we talk about its shape, then afterwards we talk about its uh, wholeness. But the second half of Mishnah Vav even though it appears to, to be continuing the discussion of the physical properties of the shofar, already brings in a criterion, the sound of the shofar, that really belongs to the next Mishnah, to Mishnah Zayin. Mishnah Zayin tells us that if you blow the shofar uh, into a certain kind of a structure, uh, then if the sound that's heard is the sound of an echo, then you don't fulfill the mitzvah. In other words, the problem here is not in the shofar. The problem here is in the sound. The sound of the shofar did not reach the ears of the uh, person who wants to fulfill the mitzvah. What reached his ears is an echo. It's an indirect outgrowth of the sound of the shofar, but not the sound of the shofar itself. Now, the end of Mishnah Vav really sounds very much like that. If the shofar ha- had a hole, and you uh, plugged up the hole, and then uh, this, uh, and then the, the 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 sound was affected. Okay, so the fact that the sound was affected means that you are not no longer hearing the original sound of the shofar. You're you're hearing the sound of the plug. Okay, so the sound of the plug at the end of Mishnah Vav is quite similar to the sound of the echo uh, in Mishnah uh, in Mishnah Zayin. So the end of Mishnah Vav seems then to be a transitional Mishnah. A transitional Mishnayot uh, is a, a common feature of Mishnah redaction, where, where the Mishnah redactor often will weave together two units by putting in a bridging unit uh, which, which serves as a segue between the two units. So the end of uh, Mishnah Vav is such a bridging unit, continuing to discuss the physical properties of the shofar, namely the physical wholeness of the shofar, it already begins to introduce the next topic, which is the hearing. The fact that you have to hear the sound of the shofar and not have the sound of the shofar intermediated by something else. So at the end of Mishnah Vav, the intermediation is within the shofar, because the shofar itself is not entire, and, and it has a plug added to it, which affects the sound. And uh, Mishnah Zayin then talks about where the sound emitting from the shofar is fine, it's entire. The shofar is whole, the sound is whole, but the person doesn't hear it directly. There's an intermediate step namely the echo between the sound of the shofar and what the person actually heard. Interestingly, the 
bridging character of the second part of Mishnah Vav is also reflected in the language. Uh, the language is im akevet pasul ve'im lav kasher. Now, this uh, double condition, if this, then it's okay, if that, then it's not, is echoed uh, in Mishnah Zayin uh, in both of its parts. Uh, if uh, the first part, if you blow into a pit, etc., Im kol shofar shamayata, v'im kol havara shamalo yata. Okay, if you heard the kol shofar, then it's fine. If you heard an echo, then not. Similarly, the uh, latter halacha in Mishnah Zayin, if a person is walking behind the shul and he hears the shofar, im kivain li boyata, v'im lav lo yata. And uh, what, what's no less fascinating, perhaps. Uh, I would say more fascinating is that the Agadic Mishnah Mishnachet continues that same kind of formulation. Uh, as long as Israel uh, looked uh, heavenwards uh, and uh, directed their hearts towards their Father in heaven, Hayumit Gabrim Vi'im Lav Hayunoflim. As long as they did this, then they were successful. When they did that, Hayunoflim. And similarly, in the latter part of that same Mishnah, Hayu Mitrapim Vimlav Hayu Nimokim. So Mishnah Vav uh, introduces the theme that will appear in Mishnah Zayin, and also the latter part of Mishnah Vav not only introduces the theme of Mishnah Zayin, but also introduces language that will weave together this Mishnah, both parts of Mishnah Zayin as well as the bulk of uh, uh, the bulk of Mishnah uh, Chet. Uh, having said that, I think we can uh, uh, we can proceed to, to try to understand uh, how this whole uh, unit is uh, is structured. We start, as I said, with the uh, source of the Shofar, that Mishnah Bet talks only about the source of the Shofar, uh, where it comes from. Mishnah Gimel through Hay combine the source of the Shofar with its shape. Mishnah Vav talks about the entirety and then segues into the theme of hearing the sound of the Shofar, the authentic sound of the Shofar, unmediated in Mishnah Vav by a plug, unmediated in the beginning of Mishnah Zayin by an echo. And then finally, that the one who hears the shofar also needs to direct his heart to that action. He needs to direct his heart to the hearing of the shofar. Now, if we think about uh, what these Mishnayot describe, I think we can readily see that they describe a uh, kind of a geographic direction. You start off with the animal from which the shofar is taken, you can continue with the shofar itself and its properties. You continue with the sound that comes out of the shofar. And the sound that comes out of the shofar has to reach the ears of the hearer without any mediation, without the mediation of anything added to the shofar itself, without the intermediation of an echo. Okay, And so 
we have a kind of direct chain linking the shofar taken from nature with the shofar as it exists in the hand of the one who blows it, uh, the sound coming from that shofar, and that has to directly link up with the person who hears it. He has to hear that unmediated sound. Okay, so we have a, a direct link then between the shofar and its source and the sound that the person hears. And then, uh, once the shofar reaches the person's ears, the, the next thing that's affected is, is the heart. So we have a kind of movement from the outside in. We start outside the person. We start in nature, from which the shofar is taken. From nature, we move to the one who blows the shofar and the sound that directly reaches the ears of the hearer. And that sound then has to then uh, then uh, rouse the heart of the person who, who hears the shofar. Now, the interesting thing is that, that this direction from the outside in continues into the Agadic Mishnah, Mishnah Chet, which tells us that it is not only that the heart has to approve and ratify the, the sound that he heard, has to identify with the sound, link up with the sound, but it has to do something else. Okay, it has to direct that heart outwards towards the Father in heaven. And so the outer action then has to affect the inner person, the inner heart. But interestingly, what it has to do is it has to take the person outside of himself. It has to take that heart and direct it outwards, or more accurately, it has to direct it upwards. So there's a kind of double geography. You have the horizontal geography down here on earth of the shofar taken from nature, which emits a sound which affects the person's heart. And then in the Agadic continuation of this Mishnah, Mishnachet, we have the heart then being directed outward and upward towards the Father, uh, towards the Father in heaven. So we've not only seen uh, a structure for Mishnayot Bet through Zion, we've also gained a new and deeper understanding of how Mishnachet links up with that structure. As we saw already, it links up with that structure, first of all, through the language of Imlav, continuing the pattern started at the end of Mishnah Vav and going through Mishnah Zayin. It links up, of course, with Kavanat Halev, and it also links up with the Ge- uh, with the geographical direction, okay, the, the horizontal direction in towards the person, towards the person's heart, the vertical direction taking the person out of himself up to his father uh, in heaven, directing the heart towards the father in uh, the father in heaven. Now, uh, a further uh, interesting point we might note here is that we saw a similar kind of uh, dual geographic movement in the first two prakim surrounding the witnesses and the masuot or shluchim, <coughs> in which the witnesses move in towards the beitin, the masuot and the shluchim move out from the beitin, and in a certain way this is sort of reenacted uh, with regard to the uh, mitzvah of shofar as it's presented uh, as it's presented uh, in our chapter I'd like to move on from here to 
discuss why the Mishnah focuses not only on the Shofar of Rosh Hashanah, but on the Shofarot of Taniyot and, and of Yovel as well. If we take a, a, a close look, we'll see that the Mishnah uh, uh, works uh, pretty hard at trying to show us that these Shofarot are not entirely independent of one another, but they interact with one another. Uh, how do we see that? First of all, let's look at Mishnayot Gimel and Dalit. Mishnayot Gimel and Dalit will we'll recognize the pattern from previous chapters as well. They're Mishnayot that are structured in a very similar way, and they're juxtaposed because of their similar structure, the same way that we had, let's say, in Perak Aleph, Mishnayot Gimel and Dalit, in Perak Bet, Mishnah Aleph and Bet. Uh, those were two classic examples of Mishnayot that seemed out of place and part of how we understood their placement uh, in the Mishnah is their very close structural simul- and, and linguistic similarity to the adjacent Mishnah. You have the same thing with Mishnah Od Gimel and Dalit. The Shofar of Rosh Hashanah and the Shofar of Tanit, the Mishnah structures both of them in the same way. What animal you use, uh, what, what you use to cover the mouth of the Shofar, Gold in the case of Rosh Hashanah, silver in the case of Ta'anit. The relation between the Shofar and the Chatzotzrot, the Chatzotzrot on the sides of the Shofar in Mishnah Gimel, the Chatzotzrot in the middle between apparently two Shofarot in Mishnah Dalid, uh, whether you blow the Shofar or the Chatzotzrot longer, you blow the Shofar longer in Mishnah Gimel, you blow the Chatzotzrot longer in Mishnah Dalit, and the reason for this given in the last line of each Mishnah, because the mitzvah of the day is the Shofar, uh, when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, that's why the Shofar is in the middle, and that's why the Shofar blast lasts longer. Uh, in Mishnah Dalit, because the mitzvah of the day is the Chatzotzrot, so that's why the Chatzotzrot are in the middle, and that's why the Chatzotzrot blasts last longer than than the blasts of the of the Shofarot. So, both of these Mishnayot basically present the Shofar of Rosh Hashanah and the Shofar of Tanit as being mirror images of one another. In other words, they're they're presented as kind of opposites of of uh, uh, of one another. Okay, whether the Shofar is the mitzvah accompanied by chatzotzrot, whether the shofar, whether the chatzotzrot are the mitzvah accompanied by shofarot, and uh, parallel to that, whether the shofar is straight or whether the shofar is bent over. Um, uh, we should say a word at this juncture about the symbolism of straight versus bent over. How would we? Understand this. Well, it would make sense that on a Ta'anit, the, the Shofar is bent over. Bent over would seem to be symbolic of what the Ta'anit is about. The Ta'anit is about some kind of impending disaster. Um, the, the Ta'anit is about the fact that the person feels broken. The person turns to the Ribbonu Shalolam uh, out of a sense of, of uh, vulnerability and of despair. So it would seem that the bent-over shofar reflects the bent-over posture of the uh, uh, broken and, and vulnerable human being, uh, vulnerable and broken society, 
that uh, uh, that is uh, blasting on the Chatzot's road and accompanying it with the Shofar. On Rosh Hashanah, the Pashut perhaps symbolizes that Rosh Hashanah is not so much a, uh, a day of sorrow, it's a day perhaps of joy. In fact, there is a mitzvah of rejoicing on Rosh Hashanah, something we learn from the Chemya Parakat, it's something that's paskened in the, uh, uh, in the Halakha. The, the Gemari even has a Havamina that you should have recited Hallel on, on, on Rosh Hashanah. And so it makes sense that we blow something that represents joy. Um, we're proclaiming a new year. We're, uh, uh, perhaps the, the proclamation also is something that requires you know, standing up straight and tall and, uh, and issuing uh, uh, such a proclamation. And so the uh, Shafar of Rosh Hashanah and the Shafar of Taniyot are presented in these two Mishnayot as having a lot of uh, similar um, uh, similar halachic issues, but generally resolving these halachic issues in in opposite ways. Mishnachet, uh, Mishnahe rather, um, seems to cement that by saying that the Yovel and Rosh Hashanah have similar laws. They have the same tkiyah, they have the same, uh, they have the same brachot. And that would make a lot of sense. The Yovel is also a joyous proclamation, a proclamation of liberty throughout the land. Um, uh, lands return to their original and rightful owners. Uh, slaves are freed and returned to their families. Uh, this, this proclamation is certainly a proclamation of straightness, a proclamation of, of freedom and of liberty. And Yovel, of course, is done in very close uh, chronological proximity to Rosh Hashanah as well. It's done on, on Yom Kippur at the beginning of the year. You proclaim the sanctity of the year at the beginning of the year. And, and uh, the Midrash notes this when it uh, explains that the similarities between Rosh Hashanah and Yovel vis-à-vis Tkian Brachot are rooted in a Gzerah Shavah, B'chodesh HaShvi'i, B'chodesh HaShvi'i, to teach us that uh, all of the mitzvot of Chodesh HaShvi'i have this similarity. Chodesh HaShvi'i is the year, uh, the month when the when the year begins. This is, takes us right back to the beginning of the Masechet, where we learn that Echad B'Tishrei is Rosh Hashanah, Lishmitim, Uliyovlot. Okay, the year begins. Uh, during the month of, of, uh, of Tishrei. So it would make a lot of sense that if the Shofar of Rosh Hashanah is presented as kind of opposite to the Shofar of Ta'anit, uh, the Tanakama in Mishnahe teaches us that the Shofar of Rosh Hashanah is in fact very similar to the Shofar of Yovel. Rabbi Yudah, however, disagrees. Rabbi Yudah says, Rosh Hashanah tokin b'shel zecharim. Rosh Hashanah, you blow, this of course is our practice uh, today, you blow a shofar of a ram, a bent over shofar, uh, as opposed to the uh, ye'ilim that you blow on the yovel. In other words, Rabbi Yudah reshuffles the deck. According to Rabbi Yehudah, Rosh Hashanah is actually similar to Ta'anit rather than to yovel. Why would that be? Could it be that Rabbi Yehudah is focusing on 
a different aspect of Rosh Hashanah, on the aspect of, of Rosh Hashanah, in which, uh, in which, uh, in which Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment. The same Gemara that had the Havamina that you should recite Hallel and Rosh Hashanah explains why in the end we don't say Hallel and Rosh Hashanah. Because the books of life and death are open before the Ribbono Shalom. How could we stand before the Ribbono Shalom and joyously recite Hallel when we're in terror and awe of the, of the judgment on Rosh Hashanah? That seems to be the feel conveyed by Rabbi Yehuda in, uh, in the Sefa of Mishnah Hay. On Rosh Hashanah, you blow a shofar of Zicharim and not a shofar of, of Yelim. So in fact, according to Rabbi Yehuda, rather than compare Rosh Hashanah to Yovel, you should really compare it to Ta'anit. And if we then take an overview of these three Mishnayot, then I think what we can see is that it was very significant and very important for the Mishnah to include Ta'anit and Yovel in the discussion of the Shofar of Rosh Hashanah. Because it seems that the Shofar of Rosh Hashanah in the end is a kind of sandwich in between Ta'anit and Yovel. Ta'anit represents the Shofar of distress, the Shofar of, of, uh, of supplication for a, for a person who's in dire need, who, who's in a situation of emergency. The Shofar, on the other hand, of, uh, of Yovel represents the Shofar of liberty, the Shofar of, of uh, joyous proclamation. The Shofar of Rosh Hashanah is somewhere in between. And so, the Tanakama, uh, reflected in Mishnah, Gimel, and Dalit, as well as in the uh, first opinion in Mishnah He, the Tanakama compares the Shofar of Rosh Hashanah to that of Yovel, whereas Rabbi Yudah compares it to that of Ta'anit and I think the underlying message of the Mishnah is that Rosh Hashanah has something of both. Okay, so the question is, which of them you focus on, which of them you uh, uh, give greater prominence to, but in the end, the, the Mishnah is communicating that the Shofar of Rosh Hashanah really does have both aspects, and not only one aspect. Let's now turn to the first Mishnah of the chapter, this very puzzling question as to why this Mishnah that de- deals with the laws of Kiddush HaChodesh is relegated to our chapter and no room was found for it in Perak Bet. It would, would have been easy to bring this Mishnah as a kind of uh, conclusion to Mishnah Zayin of the previous chapter. Mishnah Zayin of the previous chapter talked about the need to recite Mekudash, the need for the head of the Beit Din, and for the community as a whole to proclaim the sanctity of the month verbally by saying Mikudash. And Mishnah, the first Mishnah of our chapter concludes that theme, tells us in, in three different cases uh, that uh, Mikudash must be recited. And in the first case, in fact, we're told that if... Um, that if lo hispikul omar mikudash ad shechashecha, if they did not manage to proclaim mikudash until nightfall, then hareze mu'ubar. In other words, we learn that 
the Kudash is so important, it, it absolutely must be recited, or, uh, or else the new moon has not been proclaimed. This, of course, is on the 30th uh, day. If on the 30th day Mekudash was not recited, even though the Beitin had already decided that that day should be Rosh Chodesh, uh, then, then it, uh, uh, it's invalid and Rosh Chodesh will, uh, uh, will be on the, uh, on the following day. Why then was the first Mishnah of Perakimo not included in Perakbet right after Mishnah Zayn? Uh, there are a couple of interesting parallels between uh, Mishnah, uh, Mishnah Aleph of Ar Perek and the last Mishnah of Ar Perek, which we've also noticed is a Mishnah that isn't an organic part of the Perek, is tacked on at the end of the Perek. We already spoke at some length about how the first part of Mishnah Chet uh, links up with the with the uh, main body of the parak, and in a minute we'll talk about how that first part of Mishnah also links up with Mishnah Aleph, and perhaps uh, serves as part of the reason why Mishnah Aleph is included in our parak. But first, I'd like to talk a bit about how the first Mishnah of Parak actually links up with the latter part of. Uh, the last Mishnah, the very end of the Perak. The uh, first Mishnah gives us three cases of uh, uh, of unusual ways of doing Kiddush HaChodesh, where you don't have usual witnesses, where in fact the witnesses are the Beitin themselves. The first case is where the Beitin, together with all of Israel, sees the, uh, sees the new moon, and they, without receiving any testimony, they can immediately proceed to saying Mikudash. But if they don't manage to do it before nightfall, then uh, the next day becomes Rosh Chodesh. The next case is where only the Beitin sees it. Uh, and then, assuming the Beitin is more than three people, two of their number can cease functioning as judges and can function as witnesses, stand before the other uh, uh, three of their number who will continue to function as judges and say Mikudash. And the third case is where it's exactly three people who see it as a Beit Din. Well, they, what they have to do is uh, two of their number will have to, the following morning, stand up uh, as witnesses, and they'll have to uh, recruit another two judges to sit with the remaining judge and uh, say Mikudash. And the Mishnah then gives a reason for this last halacha, She'en hayachid ne'eman al Because an individual is not acceptable, believed by himself. And believed here means uh, acceptable as a judge. A judge cannot judge by himself. You must have at least three judges. This, by the way, is a direct continuation of the last Mishnah of the previous chapter, where Rabbi Dosa ben Harkinas talked about any three who stand over Israel. So here we're again echoing the need for three. We have to have three people standing over Israel, and, uh, and, and they can sanctify the new month. 
the word yachid, ein hayachid ne'eman al-yadatmo, the individual cannot judge by himself, is echoed by the opposite word at the end of the parak. Kol sheino mechuyav badavar, eino motzi et harabim yedei chovatam. Okay, anyone who is not obligated himself in a mitzvah cannot discharge the obligation for the rabbim, for the many. So the chapter opens with yachid, closes with rabbim. Uh, I won't go in detail into this theme of yachid v'rabim right now. We'll pick up this theme again at the very end of the Masachet. But that seems to be one connection between the first Mishnah of the chapter and the last Mishnah of the chapter. There's another, uh, I think, much more impressive and much more profound connection between the first Mishnah and the first half of Mishnah Chet. Ra'uhu beitin v'chol Yisrael. Okay, for the first time we're talking about a case of sanctifying the new month without witnesses. Based on what? Based on the Beitin together with all of Israel. They see the new month, and since all of them together see it, they can sanctify it without the need for any witnesses. Witnesses, it would appear, are necessary only when the community doesn't have their own uh, first-hand knowledge of having seen the new moon directly. Uh, a replacement for first-hand knowledge is, uh, in the Gemara's language, shmi'ah instead of re'iyah, that they can hear uh, rather than see. They can, they can hear from the witnesses that the new moon was sighted rather than uh, uh, seeing it on their own. Now this uh, phrase, ra'uhu beitin b'chol Yisrael, is echoed in the first agadic part of Mishnah Chet. Kolzman shayu Yisrael mistaklim klape ma'ala umechavnim et libam lavihem shabashamayim. As long as Israel were looking upwards. And notice how the same imagery that opens the chapter closes the chapter. The image of Israel accompanied by the entire court are all looking upwards. At the end of the chapter... Israel are all looking, uh, directed by Moshe's uh, upstretched hands. They're all looking upwards uh, uh, towards the heavens. Uh, at the beginning of the chapter, when Israel looks up to the heavens, what they see is the new moon. At the end of the chapter, when Israel looks up towards the heavens, what they see is not the new, the new moon, but Avihem Sheba Shemayim. And so... I think the, the Mishnah, by including uh, the, the first uh, Mishnah of our chapter here, is trying to indicate that Israel looking upwards towards the heavens okay, is like the Mitzvah Shofar. It's not only a, uh, a way of sanctifying the new moon. It's not only the prescribed way in the Torah for sanctifying the, the new moon. It's also a religious experience in its own right. It's something that helps direct the eyes of Israel heavenward. Once a month, Israel directs their eyes heavenward. And some of you may recall in this connection a very well-known uh, Midrashic statement. Uh, we know it from the Gemara in Sanhedrin and from reciting it every month uh, when we do Kiddush Levana. But the source of it actually is in the Mechilta 
and it refers not to Kiddush Levana in the Mechelta, but to Kiddush HaChodesh. The source is, uh, Rabbi Ishmael says, Imalei lo mekablim Yisrael et penehem shel avihem shabashamayim ela pa'am achat b'chodesh dayam. It's enough for Israel to uh, raise their eyes heavenwards and greet the Ribbonu Shlolem, Avihem Shabbat Shamayim, once a month. So that's what Kiddush HaChodesh is all about in the Mechilta, and I think that's what it's about in the Mishnah as well. But interestingly, only in our chapter of the Mishnah, in in Prakim, Aleph, and Bet, the focus was on uh, the focus was on other things, and in particular in Perak Bet, where the word vision was a key word running through the chapter, but the vision was a vision that simply uh, brought the sighting of the new moon uh, to the court and from the court to all of Israel uh, through the chain of bonfires in particular. All of Israel, as it were, saw the new moon. Our chapter is raising this to a higher level. By seeing the new moon, the the people of Israel are actually mechavnim et libam lavihem and so there's a very interesting parallel then created in the Mishnah between Kiddush HaChodesh and Shofar. Mishnah Chet teaches us that the mitzvah of Shofar is designed to direct uh, the hearts of the people heavenward towards Zavihem Shabbat Shamayim. And by uh, pu- placing at the beginning of our chapter the Mishnah of Ra'uhu Beitin B'chol Yisrael, echoed by uh, Yisrael mistaklim klapei ma'ala, the suggestion is that Kiddush HaChodesh itself is also a way l'chaven et libam shel Yisrael l'avihem shabashamayim. Now there are some very interesting similarities and differences between the ways in which Kiddush HaChodesh and Kiyat Shofar uh, direct the, the, uh, uh, the hearts of the people heavenward to Aviham Shabbat and we'll talk about that at the beginning of next Shiur. Next Shiur, we'll conclude our discussion of Parag Gimel, and we'll also open our discussion of Parag Dalid, so please read through the Mishnayot of Parag Dalid. The Mishnayot of Parag Dalid divide up uh, quite neatly into sections. Uh, see how the Mishnah divides it into sections. Try to get some sense of the structure and the themes of the of the chapter and after our conclusion of Perak Gimel we'll turn to our uh, in our next year to our discussion of Perak Dalit of Masechet Rosh Hashanah.